Welcome to another episode of the Science in Dance podcast. I'm really excited about this episode today and we're welcoming on Nick Ruddock to the Science in Dance podcast. And Nick is a formidable gymnastics coach with Olympic experience and now is involved heavily with his own business, setting up coaches and educating coaches in the gymnastics space. Today I've invited Nick on because We've worked together before, and I really believe that in terms of coaching principles, Nick has great value to add to the dance realm. So I really, really hope that you enjoy listening to Nick Ruddock today. As always, like, comment, share this podcast, let me know what you think and who you'd like to hear from in the future. But for today, listen to Nick's take on things, enjoy it. I'm sure you'll have new perspectives for everybody, all to do with coaching, coaching practice, and of course, a little bit of exercise science in there as well. Enjoy. Hi, Nick. Well, thanks for joining me on the Science and Dance podcast. Uh, it's great to have you. I appreciate the invitation and uh, yeah, look forward to the conversation. Always, always good when we can uh, chew each other's ears and talk about gymnastics and dance and the, the crossovers between them. Absolutely. And I, and I appreciate in the past that you've been interested to hear my take on, on, on strength and conditioning. But um, I, over the, the past couple of years of following you and being uh, involved with you uh, in the, the world of gymnastics, I'm starting to believe that you've got great value um, that you could add to the dance world in return. Um, and that's why you're, I've only asked you to come on today is just to try and bring whatever knowledge you can from a, from a coach's standpoint and from a development development standpoint, athlete development standpoint, perhaps into the dance world and help our dance coaches, teachers, and even dancers and, and, and exercise scientists within the realm, um, develop their tactics when managing athletes and dancers. So thank you very much. And if for people that don't know, um, please do just tell us who you are, what you do and a little bit about yourself. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. So um, ultimately I was a recreational gymnast. I started gymnastics when I was five years old, spent um, up to two hours a week doing that for about 10 years. Uh, very, very low level, very low level indeed. But I transitioned from there into coaching um, again, working at a recreational level. And since that point, since the age of kind of 15, I've basically essentially always been a gymnastics coach. And that is the, the bread and butter of what I do now um, with a large amount of coach education thrown in. I would say I'd probably spend more time developing coaches now than I do athletes. And um, I've got a real passion for just personal growth, really. And I like to share that with the gymnastics community and anybody else that wants to listen. And um, yeah, gymnastics is the vessel, really, which has now created a a business for me, a lifestyle uh, and a passion, which I'm, I'm very, very grateful for. I've had various roles in coaching. I've had personal coaching responsibilities for high level athletes. I've been a national coach for British gymnastics in the past, working um, as the national coach for the junior GB team. Um, I've done a lot of consulting over the last sort of four or five years since the, I guess, the inception of my business as a brand, if you like. And I've been really fortunate to work with um, over 20 different federations working at Olympic level, really, and, you know, providing advice to to those organizations about how they can develop their coaches and athletes as well. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, what I do. Amazing. Uh, I think uh, I think that kind of tips off exactly how I would love this 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 show to go today and, and how it aligns perfectly with with my questions i mean what's really interesting I, I was only watching something the other day and and listening to eddie jones and the the england rugby coach and he was you know talking about the the, the problem perhaps being in the in in rugby that we've now got co a lot of coaches who are ex-players and uh, perhaps not um enough people coming through the teaching and the coaching pathway so it's really uh in, in, interesting to you for me to hear there that you, you've grown up as a as a recreational gymnast and then as a coach and do you think that's given you um just loosely a, a head start in helping to develop coaches from that perspective rather than seeing it as a as a gymnast and elite gymnast yourself I think it certainly breaks down some barriers that people have some kind of internal limiting beliefs that they feel that they have to be or have been a high level athlete in order to be a high level coach and that's clearly not the case it's not the case with myself and there's many other coaches that I know that came from very low performance levels as a gymnast, 
that have gone up to be or, and grown and developed to be one of the highest level coaches within the sport. So it's absolutely clear to me that you don't need to have been a high level athlete to be a high level coach. That helps me to relate to some coaches, I think. Some might find that an inspirational journey as well, which if, if that's the case, and that's a bonus. But I think for me, not being a high level athlete was one of my greatest advantages. Whilst I, I might not have viewed that when I first started, I felt like I didn't have a head start because I didn't know what anything was. You know, I was learning all the terminology. I was learning the skills. It was all new to me. But really what it meant and what it has meant is that I haven't had any, any concrete beliefs that were really built up about the way that anything should be done. And I think if you've been coached for 10 years and you transition to coaching, you're pretty much going to coach the same way that you were coached. And I didn't have that. I was starting afresh. There was nothing to, you know, point me in any one direction. I didn't have a particular style of coaching because of the way that I was coached and the way that I'd seen things. I didn't have particular methods that I was always kind of warm to. So I think that really now has actually been one of my advantages. I've had an open mind because I've had to. And there, do, you, do you think there is that risk that the, if you come from, you transition from the profession or you transition from the sport at a high level, there is potentially that coaching bias. And if, the, and if we're to help uh, dancers or gymnasts or top level athletes transition into coaching, are there particular things that you would suggest people uh, look into? You know, we're, we're looking to almost start again. I know, for example, um, I'm, I have some involvement in um, the training of teachers uh, as dance for dance. And quite a lot of ex-professionals want to come back and retrain. Um, and I know I'm fortunate to, to see that process be they get completely unpicked and redeveloped is that something you look to uh, promote within your coaching development in gymnastics yes in a nutshell I think so because there's a lot of things that we need to learn and there's an awful lot of things that we need to unlearn as well as athletes as well as coaches and that is really clear it's on, on both sides of the spectrum there um, we've all got biases but many of us are unaware of what they actually are and I think that's such an important body of, of coach development and personal development is being self-aware enough to know where your biases lie, you know, what topic, and it's normally about ourselves, by the way, we're normally biased about our own performance, our own behaviors, our own qualities. And it's not until you invite feedback from other people that you start to understand that you might not be all that you think you are. And I've certainly been on that journey myself, you know, this is the way that we do things. I know this because of that. And that's just like, well, hang on a minute, Nick, you know, have you thought that you might actually be wrong on this? And have you listened to what that individual's got to say? So I think it's really important to diversify feedback, um, to have an open mind as a coach, to make sure that you're not falling victim to confirmation bias in the way that we view our, our own selves, which it, as I said, is, is often inflated. We're often very generous about ourselves and and quite the opposite when we when it comes to giving feedback about other people you know everyone's doing everything wrong and we're, we're doing everything right that tends to be how we think but that's a really dangerous place to be and that's exactly why you need like a team around you and people that you can trust um to make sure that you you stay grounded and you don't go along that line of thinking so so one type such example and you need self-awareness as a leader to do this is to allow your athletes your dancers to attend other clubs, to go to other environments so that they can learn from different styles. And that will diversify how much, um, just how much of the sporting world or the dancing world that they have had, that they've had access to. There's nothing worse really for creating a, a fixed mindset than just sticking to one environment for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's learned behavior. Of course, you're gonna think the same way that that environment teaches you to think. But what about when you step outside those four walls and you're now in a totally new environment? You think everything's wrong, but you just can't comprehend what's going on because it's so unnatural to you. So, you know, a message maybe for the leaders, can you expose your young dancers, your young teachers to different environments, which actually help them and will help your organization as well? Yeah, that that, that rings so many uh, truths in my own mind. And, and I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people. And I, there perhaps has has been some pockets of the country and, and the dance world that um, there's been a lot of competitiveness between studios. There's been a lot of competitiveness between clubs. Um, don't go on that Easter course because you'll get injured. Don't go on this. Don't do that. And, and I think in conclusion... I hear exactly what you're saying and, and it could be potentially limiting not only for yourselves as a coach and and to let your athlete go and often do something and say go and enjoy that let me know what you think when you come back perhaps they've learned something new and they add to your environment i think that's that's the, a cool concept as well but 
it's also uh, interesting that coaches have to have that air of, uh, and teachers have to have that air of self-confidence and selfish, you know, being self, you know, not being reluctant to let an athlete go and do whatever they choose to do. I think yeah. there's an element of, I know best. And when you talk to coaches, what, it, what confidence can you give them that that athlete is going to grow from those exposures you know what have you seen in your practice working with the junior national team perhaps where you got uh people coming from all over the place to your camp what do you try and send them away with when they go back to their to their club what can they grow in those times on those camps or those easter courses yeah well just coming back to the first point about the confidence that uh, a teacher would have to send their athlete or dancer elsewhere for example the only thing that would stop that is a level of insecurity you know what if they go and they think that this other environment is better than mine what if they go and they don't come back because they prefer that environment so really it you have to hold that mirror up look at yourself and say am i doing the right thing for the athlete here or am i trying to look after my own best interest now don't get me wrong i understand this is all very idealistic but i also appreciate that clubs have members they want to retain those members they have reputations i totally get both sides of the coin but the only thing that, that teachers or organizations can do to prevent losing their dancers and athletes is going to be deliver the best possible service in an environment that those athletes want to be in and, uh, and develop a, such a good athlete coach relationship or dance coach relationship, then, then you don't need to worry about those things. For me, the most important measure in my life now is impact. It, used, it never used to be that way. I never, never used to see the world in that way. It was more about what, what can... What can I do for me? And now it's about what can I do for others, which actually helps me to feel better about my life anyway. You know, we've all got the same kind of human needs. We need to feel like we're contributing. We want to be part of a community. We want to grow as individuals. You can get all of that by helping other people. So when you talk about um, what message do I want to share with people, it's mainly, you know, what, what do people need in that environment to get the most out of me and the environment? I might not necessarily be the one that needs to give that information or give that coaching. I might just be the one that facilitates an incredible environment environment for these gymnasts to come into, learn and leave going, oh my goodness, that was just the most incredible experience. I learned all of this and what memories I'm going to have for the future. Now that for me is impact. And it's not until you fast forward and I'm, I'm able to do this now. I wasn't before. I'm 33. I've been coaching for over 15 years. So I'm, I'm able to to talk to young gymnasts that I've coached before in the past and understand the impact that I've had on their career, either positive or negative. I'm able to have conversations with a lot of the senior athletes that I work with around the world, Olympians who are in their 20s, some of them 30s, and ask them, you know, what are your best memories of gymnastics? You know, who's made the greatest impact? What have been the most important things in your career? And it's not always, in fact, it's hardly ever, oh, this coach taught me this skill. It's, it's more about all the good things that came along on the journey. And that is what's so important. And again, you won't, you won't realize this if, if you've only been coaching a few years because you haven't got that kind of timeline to look back on and reflect and talk with those athletes. And so that's been really powerful for me is just having those conversations. And then you start to realize how significant the insignificant moments are to them, the things that they come back to. When you said this, when you cared for me there, when we had that car journey and we were all just singing in the car and it was just, it was, you know, it was cheesy, but it was fun and everyone had a really good time. You know, those are the memories that last and it's not necessarily that I won this event. That was, you know, that was my best performance. Those things are important to the athletes, but they might not be as sticky for them in their memories, if that makes sense. doesn't make sense. I mean, it's, it's a very powerful message that people uh, remember times with people. Um, yeah. And, and I, I absolutely I totally agree um just to kind of close off that topic of perhaps coaching and and coach development and understanding what it is to be a coach and, and how we can develop as coaches i think in the current climate um we want all coaches to develop a level of empathy um and you know a relatability and that's important understanding an athlete's environment right now uh, but i think there's a lot of coaches that perhaps are um scared to motivate in certain ways uh, and i believe that there is a fine line sometimes or certainly there is a spectrum of what is a carrot dangling on the end of a stick and what is the stick that you use in order to motivate how do you manage the difference of, of what an athlete perhaps needs when they need motivating by a, a goal that's in the further in the future or whether they need look come on 
get out of the chair you need to do this or we this is going to help you and motivating them to do something perhaps with a little bit more of a i'll say a forceful tactic i'm not going to you know beat around yeah. the bush yeah i'd say that um I think that a lot of people are looking for quick solutions with regards to motivation. And I, I always say goals are not the answer personally. I don't, I don't think a goal makes a different for, difference for many athletes because yeah, the goal might be six months, 12 months ahead in the future, but you, you want the athlete to be motivated like now, stay in the present moment. I think inspiration is the most important ingredient here. And, and I see that as being quite different to motivation. So if you can inspire an athlete to work, then they're going to do that over and over again they'll deliver when they're tired because they're inspired by you know the opportunity the the vision that they have about where they want to be as a gymnast where they want to be as a dancer in the future you know what stage they want to dance on you know who, whose company they want to be part of like that for me is inspiring that is that is kind of like a magnet pulling someone towards it motivation i see is like you, you've got a massive great big rock and you're pushing it up a hill and if you let go it's going to kind of tumble back down again and you have to start again and I, and I find that that is often what some goals can do not all of them of course but some goals tend to do so how do we inspire well we expose our athletes our dancers to what high performance truly looks like like it could be um taking the dancers to a show um, forgive me if I'm using terrible terminology. No, here. you know, you know, you're not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Um, it, it would be taking our gymnasts to some high-level gym club to watch their heroes train, for example. It could be getting YouTube open and showing them a skill that that child is already learning, but an Olympian is doing, and you show them that athlete performing it on the Olympic stage. So you can say, look, can you see this skill being performed? This is exactly the skill that you're now currently learning. And they've had to go through the same process that you have to learn it. So like, you're, you're following in the footsteps of one of these Olympians here. You know, these are all ways of inspiring. And I think that's a lot more powerful than thinking about some of the, the carrot and stick kind of variants. Now, again, very idealistic way of looking at things because I fully appreciate that you can do all of that. And there'll be many athletes, dancers that it just won't work for them. Okay. So it's really about knowing your athlete. It's knowing the individual that stood in front of you and understanding, you know, what does make them tick? What, what are their triggers? You don't want to. So we all, we talk about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. We want everyone to be intrinsically motivated. Great. Not everyone is just got to deal with that. We don't want to just flood them with extrinsic carrots because that becomes self-fulfilling. You know, you're then teaching the athlete to only reward, uh, to only value extrinsic rewards. So the praise, the medal, the sponsorship agreement, the social media followers, all this stuff, which is extrinsic, which might come as a result of them working hard. You don't want to flood them with that stuff because then you're actually kind of, you're almost nurturing the beast. You're making it harder for them to think intrinsically. We've just got to get the balance right, you know, understanding what is important for that particular individual. Um, because unless you've got that understanding, you're unable to, you're, una you're unable to, you know, to find whatever tools you need in order to motivate them in the first place. I think the culture itself is a very important part of this. So there's a lot of hours involved with dancing, a lot of hours involved with gymnastics, you know, and you're surrounded with a group of people for most of that. If the people you're spending time with are all working on the same journey, you're all supporting each other, you're having fun, you, you know, you're part of um, an experience every time you step into that environment of, of challenge, of achievement, yes, of failure, but also bouncing back and coming back from that, then I find that to be quite motivational in itself for many athletes. But when you create an environment of isolation, which is often created by over-competitive environments, when instead of, instead of um, leveraging the support of a community, you're actually trying to rival people against each other. It becomes a bit more of a lonely existence. And that's really difficult for those dancers and gymnasts to want to step into that environment every day. It might feel quite negative, but still give 100% because it's not a shared experience and community is important for all of us. So I'm sorry if I've jumped around a bit there, but they're sort of the, the first things that kind of popped into my mind. Well, no, look, my, my, my first question, and I've, I've written this out multiple times on how I want to ask it, was going to be, given the level that some gymnasts aspire to be and some dancers aspire to be, uh, uh, are de desperate to achieve, what are some key components that coaches need to think about in order to, you know, maintain engagement and positive development uh, for aspiring athletes? And I think even yeah. the word inspire um, 
is perhaps the the key thing component that I'm going to take away from this. You know, you know, showing people what they're capable of, showing the process for other people, and perhaps exposing people to once we're allowed to after this pandemic. You know, really getting back into theatres and getting back into performance spaces and 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 champion championing other people from other places and and their de- their development and their their moves forward and 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 their shows. You know, their whatever performance they might put on. I think that's. A, a great thing is to go and see similar people also of of your own age or you know slightly younger or slightly older do fantastic things and and that yeah. doesn't have to be uh, it kind of leads me on to my next question which is not just surrounding social media but it could be an environment in general um you've got let's use a scenario for example you may have a 16 17 year old gymnast um or a 16 17 year old dancer who is uh, exposed or sees or experiences a younger person do something that they have not yet achieved um on a one-to-one scale what's your advice for coaches to manage that athlete and what's your advice to perhaps that that dancer or that gymnast to you know sees themselves as a failure because they see somebody else do something one time on social media or in real life yeah. Um, managing expectations is the first thing that comes into my mind and, and just an educational piece for either coach or athlete around the context of that. And you quite rightly mentioned that could be one successful performance out of a hundred attempts, but you only see the one uploaded to Instagram or, or YouTube, of course, you know, it's a highlights reel, isn't it? No one's yeah. going to upload that fails. They'll, they'll put on <laughs> the best efforts. So that's one thing that, um, to add that bit of context to that discussion is like, well, okay, well, you know, if we filmed, if we filmed everything that you did in training, do you not think that you'd be able to do something just as impressive as that? Potentially that's just one avenue, but you know, that aside, because I don't think we should get the athlete to be worried about what they're seeing on social media. They should just be focusing on themselves. Of course, it's really to manage expectations so that they know that that one performance that that younger child has done is not indicative of their future performance. And I can think of so many gymnasts that have been very, very competent in terms of skill level, maybe not technique, technique or quality of movement, but, but they can do the skill they can do. We, we have a, a system of um, A, B, C, D, E, F, and, and G's, for example. So that's how they're graded. So you might have a 10 year old kid doing a D or an E skill, which is very, very tough. Yet by the time they're 12, 13, they've quit the sport because their body's wrecked. Um, or because of that fast, accelerated, kind of expedited journey of doing that skill, it's actually causing problems now later on. Or they haven't got the foundations that have helped them to support their time through puberty, for example. Okay, so just because you're seeing that skill is no indication of what they're actually going to be able to do in the future, or if they'll even be dancing. And so we've got this kind of marathon versus sprint concept, which I think we, we, we definitely have got to relate to in performance sport, because whilst there are every now and then young athletes, which do sprint, they, they're just good. They are so good. They are a rarity. Those, you know, the, the outliers, which just the, the genetic pick, anomaly. <laughs> there we go. Genetically incredible. They pick everything up. They're, they overachievers, accelerated learning, and they just ride that whole kind of leading the pack wave all the way through. They have a fantastic career very, very few of them. I can count them on my hand in maybe in the last decade in British gymnastics, but how many of those there actually are. Okay. Now in a marathon, you've got the people that run at the front, they go straight out as fast as they can. And they usually burn out, right? You've got the people right at the back that struggle to keep up and they don't normally finish the race either. And then you've got the middle pack, which is where I suggest that most athletes should be. That middle pack is people that are just pacing themselves, but by pacing themselves, they know they'll arrive at the finishing line. And the finishing line might be an Olympics, two Olympics, three Olympics. It might be that they want to retire on their own terms and not in injuries terms. That's whatever that finishing finishing line might be. That's where we want most athletes to be. We want them to survive the journey. Now, these are, these are all probably educational messages, which I think in the context of the discussion that you mentioned mm-hmm. would be useful for an athlete to hear, but proactively instead of reactively. And also the parents, right? Because we all know that the parents will have the same thoughts. Um, the parents are being the best that they know how to be. And when they see these videos, they probably have the same thinking. Like, why why can't my child do that? It's, it's funny you say that because the amount of, I mean, 
parents uh, and dancers come to my Instagram for advice on exercise, that's fine. But, you know, sometimes I'll see oh, it's little, little Poppy or little Tilly or little James or, or whatever. And it's and I understand for the purpose of, of social media and, and the safeguarding of it, that account is run by the parents yep. and it's parent run. But when I see the amount of engagement that one of those accounts has and the amounts of followers and the amounts of photos and things that are taken, I sometimes think to myself, you know, is the parent caught up in in this trap that sometimes our, our athletes or, and dancers get caught up in? And that's something to watch out for as, as well, I think, is a coach is, is, is where does an athlete's uh, or gymnasts or dancers um, motivation and desire come from? You know, are, are they riding a, a wave that's teed up by their parents? Or is this something that they want to do themselves? And that kind of brings me to my my next question, if you like. Um, yeah. Obviously, your um, gymnastics conventions and your gymnastics coaching uh, sort of pyramid, if you like, that you, you've developed brings in lots of people from lots lots of areas. Um, I've been fortunate as as well as our mutual acquaintance Dan Lonsdale to you know deliver on in terms of SNC and physical preparation for gymnastics. What's it been like as a coach, learning and beginning to understand sport and exercise science? What's it been like trying to bring in um, S&C or, or sports psychology or sports nutrition and teach yourself about these things or perhaps go on courses to learn about these things and then suggest to your dancer or gymnast or athlete that that's something that they should engage with as well? What's that journey been like for you? Um, it's been only educational for me. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I've always been obsessed with my development as a coach, you know, and that's there'll be coaches I'm sure listening to this that can share that share that kind of way of thinking, which is that it's just so fun learning how to be better at what we do. Like I've always been obsessed with that. And so for me, it was pretty easy transition because when I was first introduced to the concept of science and medicine support for sport, that probably would have been in my time working for British gymnastics. You know, you've got the EIS, for example, that are obviously the the partner body with the Olympic uh, sports and disciplines. And so all of a sudden I went from never really been exposed to those professionals with that experience to now having a biomechanist, you know, a dietitian, nutritionist, a sports analyst, um, analyst, physiotherapies, doctors, and everyone there as a team. You've got this entourage of people which are there to... <laughs> answer questions not to support me but support the athletes as well as well as the coaching team and, and it's like it was remarkable and so for me the transition of never having that kind of support to having that support was an easy one because it was like well wow I'm going to learn loads from these people and I did you know I always revert back to the lessons that I learned from the SNC coaches specifically within that team because it was always like okay I've got this problem can you provide me with a solution yes here we go, X, Y, and Z. And what makes that process easy is that the information works. <laughs> so, so you just implement it, you get the results that you, you want, or you get closer to them at least, which just reinforces the fact that there is so much value there, you know, tapping into people that dedicate their lives to a specific niche within performance sport. Now, if we go sort of back towards grassroots with the same concept, Yep. You know, uh, I think um, any young coach or young teacher would want their um, individuals to be exposed to the similar level of service that that, that is provided, for example, with a governing body um, yes. or an overriding body, should I say, um, such as EIS. And not everybody's got access to SNC and physiotherapy. And I think physiotherapy, certainly within dance, has been around as this uh, uh, it, previously, before my time, a reactionary service um for when people got injured um and and sports doctors uh, were there as well but now we're trying to be so very proactive in our approach to reducing injury risk um giving our athletes the best possible general platform in which to develop and, and, that, and that's great but i think because of financial situations and and and, and the costs that are involved in running a dance studio and running a dance center there can often be an obligation to provide these things without prior training, prior learning. And what's your message to gymnastics coaches or dance coaches who want to implement SNC 
slowly, steadily, and safely, do you advise people to go to outside practitioners, seek their, you know, suggest people, or do you say, look, I want to try and bring somebody on board? What do you think could be a, a key way to expose those grassroots clubs and, and, and studios to that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I would say that there are a lot of very, very good practitioners that are not working for governing bodies, of course. You know, people like yourself, Dan has been great for me. I've, I've learned an awful lot from Dan Lonsdale, who we talked about before. Um, he was kind of my right-hand man in the previous job that I had role working with Amy. And, um, you know, people like Dan, they didn't come through the governing body. They come through local council support, you know, different, different partnerships and programs that are in place. So I would say the, the first port of call is, can you, can you target the local council? Is there a sport department and a performance sport department that want to help out or can help? That's number one. Can you approach local colleges and universities to find students that need experience that might not have the level of experience that you aspire for just yet, but they've got an awful lot more than what you have and they can just kind of kickstart you and get you going. That'll be the second thing. Um, can you create a partnership with a, a local SNC coach that, um, you know, it might not be in-house support necessarily, but you can get your athletes traveling to them one day a week, or yeah, you can get that coach traveling in-house and they just do one night a week only to start with. That money is covered by the athletes, just paying a few pounds more each and the club can put in a little bit, but you don't need to go straight from like having no support, to like full-time support straight away. Yeah. You know, it's it's probably not needed for most clubs. They just need to kind of get the ball rolling. Maybe it's once a month that you bring someone in to do a discussion. Maybe it's like an hour lecture, let's call it. Mm -hmm. And then they work with your athletes for a couple of hours, give a bit of advice, provide some exercises, help educate everyone and say, cool, I'll see you next month. We'll, we'll see how we're getting on. You know, it's just kind of dipping your toe in the water to get moving. Is it a full-time coach? No. Is it a start? Absolutely. Yes, it is. That's, that's, my, my kind of initial thoughts. Now, of course, you've got online courses and all those sorts of things, but nothing beats kind of being in the environment, you know, them stepping into your world, but you stepping into them as well. And I went to see Dan working with his rugby players. And I tell you what, that was an experience. <laughs> you know, I was, I was used to working with, uh, yeah, our sort of little 12 year old, 13 year old girls doing their S and C. And then you step into a weight room with a bunch of rugby players and you start to see what, well, you know, this is S and C world is, is quite different for them than it is for us. And okay, there might not be some parallels there that I can pull. I'm not going to get the, the gymnast doing a, you know, 200 kg deadlift or whatever at this stage, but you still learn an awful lot. And, and it, it comes down to that exposure again, doesn't it? Exposing yourself to different environments. Now, talking about the necessity of SNC within dance and gymnastics, often these are things that we can't quantify you know, counter movement jump or height or jump height or reactive strength index or all these measures that an SNC coach or sports science department would use in order to build an athlete profile um, aren't necessarily what quantifies and determines good performance within within gymnastics and within dance. And I think where we've, we've discussed before is is where you cannot quantify performance truly because it is quite subjective um where does that leave us in terms of sport or dance preparation yeah. and i think with gymnastics perhaps being so skill-based or strength skill-based you know you can't do these things without a prerequisite level of strength in dance perhaps it's even less so it's very very skill-based and yes strength and power does come into it but there is such a a, a spectrum of dancers that aren't as powerful but they're very flexible they're not as flexible but they're very powerful and and we, it comes back to uh the coach sometimes believing that they can fix everything but also sometimes coming to the snc coach going i've got this skill that i'm struggling with and the snc coach goes well okay it's a skill i can only help you with its component parts such as you know grip strength or foot and ankle strength how do you blend together the necessity of an SNC coach in trying to help people develop skills? Because at the end of the day, the skill acquisition and the execution is the thing that gets scored and the thing that gets seen in performance on a one-off, not necessarily all the SNC work that went into it. Yeah. And I think uh, from a coach's perspective, I want to, I want to set the athlete up for as much success as possible, which means giving them the best chance of optimizing their physical performance. And I know that SNC would help me to get to that place. So gymnastics conditioning alone is fantastic at covering 
gymnastics and gymnastic specific movements, but there's this whole kind of gap of general general sport preparation, you know, and you've, you've seen and been familiar with some of my learning models, but you know, the, the movements on there are the bread and butter of all sport. You know, can you jump and land? Can you rebound? Can you lunge? Can you squat? Can you run? You know, these are, these are just basic fundamentals that a gymnast could go through their career without really delving too deep into the, the, the finesse of those and the enhancements. But then I think, well, how far, how much further could they have gone? What skills and avenues would have been available to them if we did incorporate those ingredients? And the answer is you'll never know unless you do them. But what I do know is I will never fulfill an athlete's potential in terms of their strength by using gymnastics movements alone. It's just not possible. I mean, there's enough science and data out there to support that. So the other thing is that it's often too late when you figure out that you've missed, you've missed a trick. So you're eight and nine, 10 year olds, you know, you're teaching stuff. It's fine. You know, their landings are poor. They're going into a valgus position. It's fine. They're not getting injured. They're only little, the skill levels low, you know, and then you wait until puberty strikes, you know, they grow a lot. Their, um, you know, the frame's different. Their whole kind of movement competency changes, usually for the worse. And all of a sudden, you've got a kid with a valgus landing position that's got sore knees and they, they can no longer do this high level skill that you want them to because you're putting them at risk. And it's then five, six years down the line that you realize I should have done that work. And I don't want to be that coach. I don't want to be that coach that, that says, you know, I, I ignored the data. I ignored the research. I just went with what I thought was best at the time, but ignored all the other advice. And now I'm ended up with an athlete who's not going to fulfill their potential. That's a massive responsibility. You know, so it's, there's, 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 you've got to have trust. You just got to trust that there are professionals like yourself that really do know what they're doing and are dedicating their world to enhancing people's physical movements and physical abilities. And that is, that is not something to kind of, um, to ignore really as a, as a technical coach. So I want all the tools available to me. If I say to an athlete, I want you to strike the floor harder in that flick. I need you to get your arms up quicker. You know, I need you to land quieter or I need you to hit a lower position when you land. I need those options available to me. But if I've got to go, oh, you know what? Her, her hips are weak. So I can't get her to do that skill because she's got poor hips, you know, or, you know, she can't land effectively forwards because her ankles or backwards, sorry, because her ankles haven't got the right range of motion or, you know, we, we can't tolerate a uh, a Yachenko vault because, you know, she, she can't cope with the force through her, through her elbows because she's too weak. Like you're just closing doors to athletes and you just don't know what doors you're going to need to be open in the future. And so hopefully that kind of sums up a little bit of, of how I'm thinking about that, that pathway, that journey. I mean, yeah, it just sounds like, you know, there's, there's pre, again, there's, there's general more uh, basic prerequisites that perhaps could, uh, you know, set up somebody for future development. And I think, um, that's something that a lot of coaches would agree on. And, and if we think about it in a, you know, we've talked idealistically, but if we think about it in an idealistic way, if you could expose and open doors, hundreds, hundred out of a hundred doors uh, at the beginning of somebody's career and when they start to take this, the sport or the, or dancing seriously, then the chances that they're going to have limitations is, is far less. And that's, that's kind of why I see it. So people ask me the question, Oh, how young is too young to start S and C? I'm like, well, it's not too young. It's just a case of what you do within that, within that realm. Um, you know, they, they see S and C and they think lifting weights. So, you know, that is a common misconception, you know, with a lot with, with young athletes, it's, it's still just about basic movement competency and skill acquisition, but in a, in a, in a raw um, human being kind of way. So that definitely answers the question and, and it kind of takes it away from, oh, well, she did, you know, a, a 10 meter flying sprint at x speed therefore she's going to be when it comes to your daughter i know that that's going to happen but it kind of it, it it leads into another question which is when it comes down to the coaching process and perhaps an athlete is um not executing a skill um in its entirety or as effectively as possible or that will get them the best score it's not there's often this coaching obligation to be able to fix it immediately I've got the trick that will fix your pirouettes. I've got the trick that will fit your, uh, whatever it may be in gymnastics. Um, I, I will fix that on the spot today because I do this certain thing where, and I think that we're coming away from that, but I'm sure you'll agree that there is, there is still an element of coaches that perhaps think that they've got a fix all for, for certain things. When you're talking to an athlete and they're perhaps having a tough time with the skill, 
what are you looking for? What are the key components to the coaching process that would allow you to overcome that moment? Is there, do you feel like there's a, a, a number of possibilities you talk to the athlete about, or is it sometimes very, very obvious? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of leading on the question there, but <laughs> what do you see when you see an athlete perhaps failing and want to help them put it right in that moment? Yeah, I, I think that um, all coaches have got a toolbox which are available to them. And I often refer to a, um, a golf bag. I don't know whether you play golf, Rupert, or not, but uh, I you, do. <laughs> there we go. you'll know that you have a number of clubs which are available to you at any one point. Some of those are going to be very appropriate for the shot that you've got. So if you're going off the tee, you're probably going to pick a driver. You're not going to choose your putter or sand wedge, right? right. If you're in the fairway, you're not going to go for your driver. You're probably going to go for a four iron or a five iron. It's the most appropriate shot for the given situation and so on. And I see coaching in the same way that you've always got opportunities and avenues and, and choices and you can choose bad choices and many coaches will through a lack of experience they just won't realize that there's another club that can do a better job they'll think that oh I, I, there was this one time when i used that sand wedge down the fairway and somehow i managed to hit the green and so now they, they pick out that club every single time thinking they can replicate the result right yeah so the way I'm i la- sorry i'm laughing because it's just such a great analogy but please <laughs> carry on it's so good yeah, but you just, it's again, it's always, this is always about self-awareness as a coach. Yeah, and you mentioned kind of God complex thinking before, which is like, it doesn't matter who who's in front of me, I can fix you. I've got the solutions. You know, and that God complex kind of way of thinking is a really dangerous place to be because it stops you from looking at all those different avenues and opportunities which are available. So there's obviously a lot of context here. You know, if it's an older athlete who's pretty experienced and they're failing at something, you can probably kickstart with a conversation, you know, um, you know, how are you feeling about this skill? Is there something in particular that you you are finding most challenging about this? You know, what do you think is the reason why this isn't, isn't going as well as you want it to? Is there one particular phase of the skill which you think we should work on instead of trying to cover all bases? You know, normally starts off with a conversation because then you get the engagement, you're empowering the athletes, take a little bit of control of that journey as well. Um, if it's a younger athlete, it's going to be more instructional. So you still need to communicate to them, you know, okay, don't worry. I know you're making a lot of mistakes, but I think that between the two of us over the next kind of couple of weeks, we'll be able to sort this one out. You know, so straight away, you've created a partnership. You're creating a bit of energy there. You say, this is what I would like to try. And how about we give that a go for the next few days? And if that doesn't work, we'll look, we'll look at a few other options as well. But over the course of two weeks, I think we can probably together manage a solution but just be patient because it might not go as well as you want it to straight away. That's part of the process. So again, you're, you're kind of managing expectations that you're probably going to fail a few more times, but that's all right because eventually we'll figure out what doesn't lead us to fail and where we start to find success. Uh, for me, I just think that as in coaching, I don't think anything is particularly challenging or complex. I just think there's so many things to do. I don't, I don't think there's any topic that is difficult for a coach to learn. It's just that there's so many things to learn and that's the problem. And it's, it's taking that step back sometimes and going, okay, there's so many things that I could fix or change here, but which one is actually causing the problem? It's that kind of domino effect of cause and effect. You know, what one thing is really contributing to this skill not being right? Let's prioritize, you know, which ones are most likely to be the case? You know, is it going to be nutrition? on this pirouette that's failing. Okay, well, it could be a lack of concentration, which is caused by the nutrition, but to be honest, it's more likely to do with their center of mass not being over their support leg or, or something like that, okay? Forgive me for stepping too far into the dance world there, but- <laughs> Do not worry. I mean, I, 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 get where, I get where you're coming from. And I it kind of, again, nicely seg- nice segue into my next question on that topic is that, okay, so we've, we've te- we know about the process. We know that two weeks down the line, we're gonna be in a better place that, that, than we are now. Yeah. And, and I believe that that is true for a lot of people. Perhaps when you start to believe as a coach that there are other factors at play to, as to why somebody isn't achieving, how, is, how does that conversation go with perhaps your, um, and in gymnastics, I guess that's quite a competent age, but 16, 17, to up to 20-year-olds, which are probably elite level now or at the certainly elite recreational level, um, how does that conversation go when there's, there's frustration creeping in and we've tried this and we've tried that. And now there's perhaps the, the multifactorial um, aspect to, you know, what's going on. Are you, are you sleeping? Okay. You're coming in pretty tired. Like how is that conversation go from your standpoint? Is it, is it just uh, again about asking, you know, 
polite questions, a level of empathy. Have you seen scenarios that have been, you know, a plethora of mistakes or failures over a period of time, which have been caused by things outside the gym, outside the studio? Yeah, and I think you mentioned the word empathy there, which is probably the, the key here is if you're, by the time that athlete is 16, 17 years old, I'd like to think I've got a really good relationship with them and that we can communicate about all sorts of different things. So you're not just going to get this curveball come out of nowhere. You're going you're gonna to know, you know the athlete. No one knows the athlete better than the personal coach typically or the people that are spending time with them every single day. You can read the body language. You should be having these conversations what one of my mentors calls in the spaces you know it's not the technical time it's the it's the bit that happens in between your technical points and your snc sessions it's you know that, that moment of building rapport and just having general chat like you should know through the vibe if, if something is wrong and you should be able to communicate with your athletes but you can only do that if you've built that athlete coach relationship and that's going to be built on trust isn't it it's whether they they know that you value them for them and not for their performance so so you know are they just an athlete to you? Are they another number? Are they just another person that can help you win medals or, or create this amazing show? Or do you really value them as an individual? And do they feel that? Because if they do, then they're more likely to have some of these upfront conversations. Now, depending on the context of what I think might be going on would depend on whether I would be the most appropriate person to have that conversation. From a welfare perspective, from an expertise perspective, it might be that you need to call upon other providers. And again, if you've got the luxury of being of having access to that, that could be a psychologist. It could be just talking to the parents. It could be um, a nutritionist, you know, because that's not a world that I'm going to step into, it, you know. And so it's really understanding where, where the, not the, where the line stops as such, but is the coach a facilitator in resolving whatever concerns there are? Or do they go beyond the facilitator other the person that needs to drive that conversation? But I think that just communicating is, is the key ingredient here. And you, you'd ask, you know, have I seen this kind of go wrong? Absolutely. Over and over again from coaches that don't have the empathy for the athlete, that won't, won't even consider that there's anything which could be affecting their performance other than the fact that they're not trying very hard. You know, so, that, so they're not performing well. You're being lazy. Okay? You're not concentrating. You know, just immediately going to those kind of answers as opposed to thinking, you know, the empathetic way is there, is there something that I'm missing here? Is there, is there another form of stress here, which I haven't considered, you know, is it a sleep thing? Is it a family thing? Hey, is it a boyfriend or a girlfriend thing, depending on, you know, which athlete you're working with, et cetera. There are so many other factors. And I think that's what athletes need from us as a coach is to be very emotionally intelligent to demonstrate enormous levels of empathy, because without that, at some point, the journey will go wrong. And again, it probably won't be when they're young because they're robots and they'll follow advice and, and instruction. It will be as they start to develop and, and grow older. Based upon these things that you've seen um, and, and times when people haven't been, you know, achieving what they're perhaps set out to achieve or, you know, and I'm sure that's amongst great success at the same time. And I'm sure there's light at the end of the tunnel for, for all these athletes where eventually they overcome these things and do achieve. But I think sometimes coaches go through, um, and, and I kind of want to talk about the coach as a person here uh, and what they go through emotionally as well, because I think that sometimes that there's an, uh, coaches are encouraged to reflect and do a lot of reflective practice. And, you know, I'm not talking about the minority that perhaps that don't, I'm more talking about those that reflect so heavily that perhaps they take on so much responsibility and sometimes think that something's their fault oh you know my athlete fell off today um she hurt herself i feel responsible have you got any advice for coaches that perhaps sometimes feel that a sense of uh, of responsibility and where they perhaps shouldn't yeah um perspective i guess um understanding the role of a coach is significant but it's not everything there are more factors at play to an athlete's success um understanding this is coming back to self-awareness again, understanding fear as a coach. So if you're having some of those thoughts, they're normally fear-led thoughts. Um, you know, if my athlete fails, it's because of me. Well, what's the fear and the emotion which is causing those kind of, that way of thinking in the first place? Mm. Is it about insignificance? Is it about the athlete's result? Is a reflect, direct reflection of your coaching and therefore that you, the way that you value your own self and your self-esteem is based on performance rather than anything else? So, so the self-awareness piece, I think, is incredibly important. Um, yeah, taking a bit of pressure off the coach. But at the same time, I mean, it's tricky because there aren't actually, you say, you say the minority that, that 
don't reflect. I'd say it's the other way around. I'd say that the... I was being polite. <laughs> I I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be polite, Rupert. And I know you were, but I'm not going to be. I'd say that it's it's a minority of coaches that are, are self-aware, certainly within my world, um, that do reflect, that do take ownership and accountability. And I would want more coaches to do that rather than less. Yes, there are going to be a minority of those that take it too far. And uh, I think in that case, it's about, again, having people around you and a team around you to reassure you, um, building up a support bubble and a support network to make sure that you're not taking on too much. I mean, yeah, I, I do in, in, in agree with you. Um, certainly, I think within, within the dance world, just to give a bit of context, I think that there is uh, the competitive side of dance, obviously, and then there's those that want to pursue it as a career that isn't necessarily competitive at heart. Obviously, they have to audition and they have to compete for roles, and uh, and there are there is that that in-house level of competition and that that subjective level of competition, but it's not necessarily scoreboard type competition. Yep. Um, so I think where certain dancers are concerned and certain dance teachers are concerned it's it is about the journey quite naturally and i think because we know that we at a certain level when dancers enter vocational training perhaps they're going to be on a three four five year pathway to achieve um uh, employment and hopefully have a long illustrious career in that sense and they've chosen they've placed their faith in you they've chosen you know so sometimes the, again so some of these obligations creep in and, I, and i'd i'd like to think and i don't believe in in, in the dance world that you know within that setting that, that it is towards that goal but again perhaps the value sometimes lies in well if they didn't achieve a dancing job or they didn't achieve the percentage gold medal time or whatever you want to call it then the organization's failed. And, mm. and something you mentioned earlier is, is, the, um, is the wider skills of, of a coach. And we've got to know these uh, so many things. None of them are particularly difficult to, to learn. But have you ever had conversations with your g gymnasts that surround um, what they do outside of the gym, perhaps to uh, relax, to perhaps to unwind, perhaps to engage in other and learn in other ways? What, what kind of things have you uh, helped your gymnasts be exposed to that perhaps isn't gymnastics itself? Yeah, I have done. And um, quite recently, actually, because I find that sometimes the, and, and coaches also, by the way, it's just, it's, you know, athletes and coaches, you know, those athletes that are just so consumed and obsessed with everything gymnastics. And it's like, well, give yourself a bit of a break here. Um, climbing was one that I, I did before, you know, taking the athletes to the climbing wall, um, a totally different type of strength, you know, great for hip mobility as well as forearm and grip strength and stuff. So um, I did some climbing with uh, Amy Tinkler. She went to a climbing wall as well, you know, so lots of different things really, to be honest with you. Um, I think that understanding, I'm, I'm sorry to elude the uh, evade the question that you've just asked, but coming back That's again before point. I forget, it's just about being patient as a coach. Mm. But remember, the success measure for me is about impact. And I know that the impact is far beyond just whether a result or a goal has been achieved or not. Mm. And this is why it's so important that the athlete has a good journey. Now, I don't know about yourselves and your environment within dance. Most gymnasts probably won't achieve the level that they really, really dream of achieving, which is going to be like, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to go to a world championships and be an international gymnast like my heroes. The vast majority will get nowhere near that. So if you're, if the outcome for the coach, as well as the athlete is, is only going to be deemed a success, if they achieve that, then that's, you're just setting yourself up for failure and disappointment because most of them won't, you're, you're only going to get the um, anomalies, the, the outliers, again, the exceptional athletes that are going to get to that level. So the journey is so important because that's the journey that everybody is going to be able to, and your impact is measurable across that whole journey. So if a 16 year old finishes gymnastics, okay, they've finished the sport. They didn't get to the Olympics or a national squad level, but what they've left the sport is uh, with is, you know, a great understanding of accomplishment, a great understanding of dealing with adversity. They've got amazing friends. They've got coaches that they can lean on whenever they need to. They've got an understanding of emotional intelligence, competitiveness at a healthy level, you know, all of these things and what an impact you've had as a coach. All right. And I often say for emerging coaches that the best athlete that they've ever, they've ever coached um, probably isn't born yet. And, and that's just the reality that we're very impatient when we first start coaching, we want results straight away. Um, but for the young emerging coaches that are just starting now, the best athlete that they ever produce, and let's use that term, 
probably isn't yet alive because they haven't had the coaching years yet to kind of support that level of coaching. They might need to wait 10, 15, 20 years. And sometimes it's just like, just take a step back and enjoy this part of the journey, like this kind of messy, everything's confusing, exciting stage. I see that as the exciting stage because there's far less pressure. When I first started coaching, there just wasn't any pressure. It was just about, you know, you, you, you coached what you coached. The result was what you, you got. And now it's like, well, actually, Nick, you're, you're consulting for 20 teams around the world that all want a medal at the Olympics. That's, that's less fun. There's <laughs> 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 pressure. Well, yeah, the, the, the pressure is certainly on in that environment. And maybe dance is a little bit more um, open for interpretation, which allows there to be perhaps more employability, certainly, in, in, yeah. and, and, and further avenues to pursue. You know, we, we've got people becoming choreographers, jazz dancers, ballet dancers, contemporary dancers, musical theatre. Um, you know, some dancers are now being employed as dancers only in Cirque du Soleil, which is kind of uh where those where those two crossover worlds emerge uh, it's, uh, but but it's not the only place those things cross over i mean we're starting to see in competitive dance and auditions and and company dancing and festivals whatever we want to call them we're starting to see a far more uh, far greater gymnastics influence now um in order to i'll i'll say it fill the choreographic space um <laughs> is is probably the best way for me to put it and i don't want to say lack of creativity I want to say that perhaps it's an opportunity for people to express themselves in a very high, like almost high octane kind of way. You know, it's, it's exciting. Um, it can sometimes be over, over facing and it kind of uh, comes back to a scenario. I was, I was, I was in with a, a client way back and she was recovering from a, an injury very, very young um, it, to have this kind of injury, you know, an ACL reconstruction basically. Um basically through chucking skills into dance routines that she was by no means ready for um whether that's to do with uh she'd learned them in gymnastics and brought them into dance whether she'd not been taught them correctly but many young dancers are putting these skills into the routines based upon previous gymnastics training or perhaps not developing them with the right coach involved um, what advice have you got for perhaps dance teachers and studios and and choreographers that want to bring in these skills into their routines because they're impressive, but perhaps they've not been taught or practiced in the right environment? Is there a starting place that dancers perhaps should look for to begin with? Uh, yeah, the biggest message is respect the movement, like respect the skill, because as you've alluded to there, you know, young athlete having a um, pretty bad injury that they shouldn't have had due to either, um, I don't know, it could have been technical competency, physical movement, too much volume or whatever. So just really respect those gymnastic skills because they are, they are unique and they're challenging. Now there's going to be a lot of crossover, of course, and there'll be a lot of um, uh, cross pollination. You know, for example, if you've got a, a dancer with great mobility and active flexibility, that's going to lend itself to some acrobatic gymnastic skills, which b- makes them easier. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're able to perform that skill over and over again because of how dynamic it is, how how the landing is. For example, it might be slightly different than the way they land in in dance. Um, so yeah, really respecting the rules, but also, you know, flip this the other way around. If you said, okay, well, we're going to take a lot of what dancers do and we're going to put it into gymnastics. I'm sure a lot of dance teachers would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a, you know, you're going to do it wrong because you don't know the basics. You've got to understand the basics first. You can't just copy the movement. And I would say the same thing. You know, the first step would be get a gymnastics coach in. <laughs> Get, oh, you know, for sure dance teachers would be <laughs> would be saying please do not butcher butcher dancing today like, that's exactly <laughs> so if if you're having that feeling on the flip side then i can only yep. imagine how it must be to to see that perhaps without the correct development but could it be the same uh, is the solution perhaps to again to bring in expertise or go you know do gymnastics centers offer the opportunity for people to come and learn things that, from a base level you know what what could dancers be exposed to if they even want to try and do that learn to do that yeah i think in normal times you've got adult gymnastics classes available you've got regular gymnastics classes for for kids still that want to participate where they're going to learn those things some clubs offer private one-to-ones some clubs will allow you to hire their space and their staff. Uh, there would certainly be staff like coaches that would be available to come into dance schools. They'd love that. And there'll be some exceptionally good people. I think that, I think all avenues there are open. It's just a case, like for me, if that was me, I just jump onto Google. I'd be searching for local 
coaches and clubs within the local area of the of the dance school or academy and that'll be my starting point you know and start start the conversations align yourself with people that share the values and the philosophies that you do as an organization and start to build a relationship from there um because there are many similarities which would make and kind of expedite the process you know we're not talking about taking a footballer here who probably doesn't layer the learning of skills in the same way that a dancer would you know in dancers and gymnastics you've got prerequisites micro progressions you're looking at little details and so they're both going to understand that world and so i think it's probably you know you'd be amazed at how easily some of the skills would come with the correct coaching the correct progressions but at the same time, you'd be amazed at how quickly you can mess things up if you miss an important stage, particularly some of the psychological things, you know, because it's understanding, okay, we can do this correct. And this, this athlete, this dancer can do it four times out of five with no problems. Cool. 80% success rate. What's the risk of the other 20%, you know, and you've got to have athletes that are able to do things right and do things wrong and, and go again. And you can't do that if you've missed important stages or if there's a gap in their physical kind of, you know, physical development. Yeah, and I think there's 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 different genre of dance, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with disco and freestyle uh, dancing, uh, Nick. But um, I'd I'll certainly... start a few disco moves if that's what you mean. Well, it, it, it's 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 amazing kind of combination of acrobatics, tumbling, trickery, fast spinning, which perhaps doesn't have the finesse that ballet and jazz and contemporary do in some ways. And it's, it's very high impact routines and they smash these things out and it, it is a, it's a dance sport rather than, and I think sometimes we can be my, my final question because I, I'm conscious of time as well is that you're, you've spoken to me before about load and you've just mentioned it there in, um, in terms of somebody's workload and perhaps doing a skill and, their level of fatigue or their workload being a factor that meant that they got injured has how has um the workload theory fallen upon gymnastics because for example i i was talking to somebody the other day about dance and they were they were saying our build-ups like this uh, for when we start back are going to be um one hour then the first week we're going to be one hour a day then the next week we are going to do two hours a day and i was like well let me just stop you there because if we're going along this trend by week four you've quadrupled the workload from week one and it's sometimes and it, they take us back and go oh okay that makes a lot of sense like maybe we'll do one and a half <laughs> or something like that you know where do you how do you manage workload in your perhaps let's take amy tinkler's workload for example yep. how on a day-to-day -day basis how much are you managing how much that athlete does in order to be fresh the next day, fresher the next day, and what are you peaking for? Is that some a, a conscious thought process that you go through as a coach? Absolutely conscious, but gymnastics is still struggling with the model because of there's some, and I've had the, I've had a, a call this morning actually, uh, an hour call about this exact topic of which is why you probably saw me smirking of uh, workload because it, there are some real challenges within our sport, and there are in every sport monitoring load, but for us, you know. Um, one repetition is not equal to another repetition if it's on a different surface. You know, if you're landing on a soft mat versus a hard mat, if you're landing from uh, one meter versus three meters, you know, it's all going to create different levels of forces through the body. And it's something that's really difficult to do without sitting there with a clipboard and kind of having someone monitor every single rep, which, as you know, is, is not efficient. It will be effective, but not efficient. So we're struggling with it still as a sport in general, but down to the personal coaching um responsibilities here it's definitely something that you've got to consciously think of particularly with an athlete like amy who's an you know an olympic medalist and doing enormous difficulty in their floor routines um you know you've, you've you've got to have that at the front of your mind you know what can i expose the athlete to safely that will give me the the right balance between recovery um progression but then not expose them to too high a risk of injury and i say too high a risk because if you're doing double back with double twist then there's always going to be a risk but obviously it's within certain factors so um being smart about it following some basic principles and it's very different difficult for me to say what they are without the context here of you know okay what event is it how many times have they performed this routine before how many training hours are they doing and, and all those kind of things but just kind of having a bit of common sense there some of the things for example that we used to do was uh, you know amy's now retired was um 
we did a typical knee to wall stretch at the start of every training session and just before she would start her acrobatic work. And that would be another indicator that I would use to help me, inform me about how much workload I'd be able to do that training session with her. Now she might feel fresh, but if she had a big floor session the day before and her ankle range was actually one and a half, two centimeters less because of the stress response of that, then I would need to make a smart decision to say, okay, we're only going to tumble on softer surfaces today, or we're going to keep the reps down low to allow your, your ankles to kind of, um, you know, settle a little bit before our next big training session, you know, or, you know, Saturday, we absolutely beast Amy in training and she hits the weights gym. You know, I need to allow that Sunday as a day of recovery Monday, I need to be thinking, okay, so we've had a, a full day of recovery. We did a big session on Saturday. You know, what's the right thing to do today? It's definitely a conscious thought, but athletes don't tend to fall into our beautiful spreadsheets. You know, those plans that we create to say, right, we're going to do three days of this and the athlete's going to feel like this at the end of it. And then we'll give them a day off. And this is how they're going to feel at the end of the day. Nico, off. I was just about to ask how, <laughs> how many times have you thrown your plan out the window? It's well, it's, it's ever evolving. Like I think you have to start with like a template and go, well, this is what we're going to roughly manage or, or try and do. And in each day you do have to review it and say, well, we can't quite manage those reps today. What's the closest we can get to, or, you know, how much can I achieve this week instead of just trying to push it all in this day? There's a, there's, I mean, this is a topic that we could talk about for hours, you know, periodization, planning, workload management, et cetera. But ultimately I think that you have to be kind of rigid with your standards, flexible with your approach. You, you want that high performance result, but you've got to bend a little bit in terms of how you're going to navigate to it. Mm. And, uh, and ultimately, of course, it's always putting the athlete's welfare um, at the front of those decisions. Okay. Well, Nick, I, I, you've pretty much ticked every box today in terms of questions. I, I cannot even start to think about the amount of detail or thought you're putting into these answers. And I just really, really appreciate it. I feel like I've, I've unpicked every question that uh, with you that I've wanted to ask you for um over a year um and, and i really really appreciate you you joining us today and and i think it would be really beneficial for people to go and visit your podcast as well where you interview and talk with some really fascinating people from the world of gymnastics and 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 other practitioners also that you bring on board to, like to oh yeah yeah I, I love being part of part of that and that seems like a you know an ancient time now compared to, to yep. compared to now um so i appreciate you returning the favor for me um where can people find you where could people perhaps get in touch with your content and, and reach out to you for the future Thank you, Rupert. And again, appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat with you. As I said at the start, it's always enjoyable and I, I learn a lot too. Um, if people wanted to kind of follow up with this with either listening to my podcast or whatever, the, the podcast is called The Gymnastics Growth Show. It's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And uh, my handle is at Nick Ruddock across um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Instagram's where I'm most active. Um, and my website's nickruddock.com as well. So that's R-U-D-D-O-C-K. And I like to ask a lot of people this question and feel free to not answer it. Have you got any big projects that you're excited about in the in the kind of the coming year once life kind of tr trends back to normality? Um, is there anything coming up that people people should watch out for? And, and is there anything sort of in the pipeline? My issue is I've always got way too many projects in the pipeline. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, expanding on a lot of the coaching programs that I'm doing now, uh, we've got, I've got something called the Gymnastics Growth Academy, which is basically a, a membership program for coaches wherever they are in the world. So we've got massive plans at expanding the level of content and the amount of content in there when we can get back into a gym filming some stuff again. And um, yeah, just basically looking forward to putting some events on again. It's been a, a bit of a while since I've been able to run some big events, like big conferences, and so, yeah, watch this space. I've got a wedding. I've got to get out of the way first before I'm allowed to run another event. The only time, so. <laughs> well, I appreciate you bringing your your coaching knowledge um, in its in its in its levels to the dance world. Um, I think you've spoken really eloquently um, that the dance teachers and coaches and dancers will be able to relate to. So, thanks again, and this has been awesome. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much.